invite you to open that Bible this morning to John 14. John 14, we come to that third part that we've titled, I've titled Divine Blessings Part 3. That section runs all the way from 14, chapter 14, verses 15, all the way down through 31. I'd like to just begin by asking a question, and the question would be this, what does it mean to have a relationship with God? What does it mean to have a relationship with the Son of God? We speak much in that language, appropriately so. What does it mean to have a living, active relationship with God? But I want to address something a little different today. And this would be the question, what is the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to you? That's the question. What is their relationship within the triune God to you, to the believer? That's the question. And that's the text that we want to look at this morning. Let me read for you. You follow along. Verses 15. Let me go through 24. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father. And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet in a little while the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You will also live. And in that day you will know that I am in my father. And you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. It is he who loves me and He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the fathers who sent me. It's an incredible passage of scripture. Jesus there tells us about the Trinity. He tells us about the triune God. He said, I will ask the Father, and the Father will send the Spirit to you. Later in this discourse, Jesus will say, I will send the Spirit to you. Then Jesus actually says from the second person of the Trinity, verse 18, I will come to you. Amazing statement. And then in verse 23, he puts them together. We will come to you, Father and Son. It is one of the most intimate passages in all of the scripture regarding the promises of God to you. I can't, I mean, there's a lot of blessings that come to us in the Word of God. This may be one of the most intimate in all of the Scripture on what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit bless you with in terms of a relationship to God. It's a great passage. It's a deep passage. It's a rich passage. It is filled with wonder and with meaning. Now again, I remind you as we turn to John 14, it is in the upper room. He's in the upper room discourse. And don't forget, it's Thursday night. He kept telling him in 1333 and 1336 and 14.3 that he is going away. And we know that his departure from them, at least in 14.1, when Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled They were in the process, in the language of being troubled as he spoke. And so you could say, stop letting your hearts be troubled. It is Thursday night. They are troubled. His execution is tomorrow. And what's amazing in light of that fact is that Jesus selflessly encourages them with these wonderful blessings, these divine privileges and blessings. Promises, if you will, for their troubled hearts. Promises, obviously, for you, for I, this morning. 
And our Lord guarantees this, the full presence of the triune God every moment of every day for you forever. Let me say that again. He guarantees to you the full presence of the triune God every moment of every day forever. And you ask, is this promise, is this blessing just for the disciples? Well, certainly in the context, he's going to come again at his resurrection. But if you look over just a few pages, this promise is for everyone. Look there in that discourse in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Jesus will there capture all of us, not just the disciples, when he said, I do not ask for those only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, through the apostles' word that would become inscripturated. And so the blessing goes to these disciples, but it's extended to all who believe in his word. The promise is this, that the ever-present triune God living in the life of every believer. It is an incredible statement by our Lord. And so as we glance here at John chapter 14, verse 15, all the way through 31, Jesus is delivering five blessings that come to us because of his departure to the Father. That's in essence what he's saying. I'm leaving, I'm going, but don't let your heart be troubled and here's why. And then he dispenses, if you will, five blessings to these disciples, five blessings to you, Because he departs to the Father. We've looked at the first blessing. I'll touch on it. The blessing of the Holy Spirit. The blessing of the Holy Spirit. And we noted in verses 15 through 17, there are three specific blessings that flow from the coming of the Holy Spirit. The first blessing that we noticed in verse 15 is that it's entrusted to believers, obviously. It's entrusted to believers. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's talking here about the Holy Spirit being sent to those who know him. But secondly, we noted that it's imparted by the Father and the Son. He says in 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So he prays, he asks the Father, the Father sends the Holy Spirit. But I noticed there on the second part, he's imparted by the Father and the Son. Later in John chapter 16, he tells the disciples, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. But then thirdly, we notice that the Holy Spirit is identified by name. And we looked at that extensively a few weeks back. In fact, you can see it. Two names are given. But look in verse 16, I will ask the Father... And he will give you, and remember, here's his first name of the two, another helper, another of the same kind. In other words, I will give you one exactly like I am who does my work. Just as Jesus Christ was another advocate, it says he was the advocate in 1 John 2, 1. He says, as I depart, I'm going to give to you... I'm speaking to you, right? It's not just a history lesson, though it is. I'm giving to you, Jesus said, if you're in Christ, a helper. As I depart, you'll be blessed because you have to be in my presence every moment of my three-year ministry. But when I depart to the Father, I'm going to send you this other helper. It's the Greek word parakletos. Para just means to come alongside, and kletos means to call. And so he dispatches, if you will, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We went through that at Acts 2. The Parakletos, who's also identified as another helper. He's termed as the counselor, as the comforter. The word just means that he stands at your side to plead your case. He's called alongside, if you will, to teach you. He's called alongside in this text, as you can see there in verse 16, to be with you forever. In fact, Jesus said to you, it's to your advantage that I go away. He said that first to his disciples in 16.7. He said, if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I'll send him. Jesus said, I'll send him. 
16, 7, and he will be with you forever. And of course, as I mentioned, that happened at Pentecost. So he's identified by name. He's another helper. He's there to help you. He's there to assist you and so forth. But there's a second name. You'll see it there in verse 17 is where we left off. He's the spirit, even the spirit of truth. That's a name for him. He's the spirit of truth. You say, well, what is the Holy Spirit? Well, we already identified a few weeks back that he's a person. He's not a force, okay? He's a person. And he's a person here who is identified by name. He is the spirit of truth. Amazing because we know that in this context, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said in John 17, 17, that your word is truth. But here the Holy Spirit, it tells us something of who he is. He's the spirit of truth. In fact, glance again at chapter 16 of John. Look there, and we'll get to this later. When the spirit of truth comes, same name in 1613, he, he's a person, will guide you unto all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. I love this little phrase in 1614, he will glorify me. So what does the Spirit of God do? He glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. For he will take of mine and he will declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. He is a spirit of truth. What a wonderful blessing. Here's that first blessing. You get another helper. You get a comforter. You get a teacher. You get a counselor who reveals the person of Jesus Christ to you. And the the truth is, on this blessing, and we touched on that, look back in John 14. It's just such an amazing statement. In 14 verse 16, he's another helper to be with you, it says there, forever. So what do you mean by that? I mean by that, the text means by that, that the Holy Spirit, when you become a believer, takes up personal residence in the life of every believer in light of the physical absence of Jesus Christ. He takes up residence with you. He's with you forever. In fact, the Bible says, and we'll look at this in just a moment, that the Holy Spirit, beloved, lives in you. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.19 that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives, where? In you. In other words, when you become born again and when your heart's regenerated, a lot of things happen at salvation, but one of them is that the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. And I think it makes sense, doesn't it? If you look back in the text at 1417, and he makes a, a clear statement here at the end of 17, for you know him, okay, it says there, for he dwells, look what Jesus said at the end of 17, with you and will be, future tense, what? In you. So the Spirit of God was watching over, if you will, all the way back in the Old Testament. But the uniqueness of Pentecost is that there's coming a day that he will be in you. He will take up residence in your life, and that's why you can grieve him. That's why you can quench him. But he resides in you. Maybe another way for me to say it is he dwells in you. You know, I was listening to a song this week. Sometimes I could probably get a little picky. I'm sure I might step on a few toes here uh, this morning because maybe you like this song. And I'm not trying to say everything about this song is wrong nor fault the people necessarily that are singing. I can't see in their hearts. But it's a song and it goes like this. Holy Spirit, you'll know it. I think many of the young people will. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here Come flood this place and fill it 
with your atmosphere. Sometimes it goes, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and flood it with your atmosphere. Now, you know, I listen to the song, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. I, I, I understand probably the heart behind it. But flood this place with your atmosphere. As though the Holy Spirit is a spiritual helicopter looking for a place to land. Beloved, listen, the truth of the scripture is he's not in the atmosphere. He's in you. He lives in you. He's come to take residence in you. He's not something that fills or floods the atmosphere. He's inside of you is the thought. He will be with you, but in the future, Jesus said, he's going to be in you. He's not looking for a place to land. He's residing. He's indwelling in you. So, well, Scott, what is that? Well, we'll talk more about that. It's about union with Christ. Sometimes the theologians used to call that the mystical union of Christ. It's even hard to describe. But the promise here, the blessing that he gives to the disciples and to us, listen, it's to your advantage that I'm going to go away. Well, why is that? Because that Holy Spirit is going to dwell in you and he's going to live with you forever. He knows, 1 Corinthians 2, the thoughts of God does the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, he distributes gifts in the church. In John 14, 26, later, he teaches. It says in John 15, 26, he testifies. In Matthew 4, 1, it says that he leads. In John 16, he convicts of sin. In Acts chapter 8, he speaks. In fact, I don't have the time, but I was just looking, I'll tell you another week, five different verbs in John 14 on the Holy Spirit. And five different times it says the Holy Spirit speaks. So what are, you, what are you talking about? I think we've made the Holy Spirit a feeling. And what I'm telling you from the Word is that one of the chief operations and manifestations of the Spirit is He declares to you what Jesus has said. He is, he is speaking, if you will, and He's testifying to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. So He says, listen, here's the first blessing. I'm giving you the comforter. I'm giving you another helper. I'm giving you the spirit of truth. I will reveal to you, apostles, those words that were mine, but he's also living in you. Now listen, as he says this, I'm sure the disciples thought, I, I don't know, you think that. What do you think that meant to them? Remember, he's giving them a future promise. As I go, as I'm lifted, as I go to the cross, as I'm raised again on the third day, and as I ascend into glory, I will leave you, but I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. I don't, I don't think he quite understood like you understand. Holy Spirit is a person. He's taken up residence in your heart. And that's why when you live in sin or when you sin, you can grieve him. That's why when you sin, you can quench him. That's why we need to ask the forgiveness of God in the face of sin because you have the resident person and power of the Holy Spirit who is filling you, who is indwelling you, who is inside of you, who is prompting you to holiness, who is prompting you to obey God, who is prompting you to open your mouth to speak to people, to witness to them. He's living inside you. And maybe one of the prayers is when we get up to in the day is, Lord, Spirit of God, use me. Bring people into my path. Bring people into my, my venue, if you will, that I could share the Lord Jesus Christ with you. But that's not the only blessing he gives. There's the second blessing, not only of the Holy Spirit, but the blessing of the Son. The blessing of the Son. How do you read this in verse 18? He says, Jesus says to them, I will not leave you as orphans. I love this phrase. I will come to you. So why did he tell him that? Because an orphan is alone, is it not? Orphan doesn't have to just be missing both parents. It could just be missing one parent. We've got them in our church. There's orphan children, just one parent in our church. 
And oftentimes there is, in this sense, a sense of destitution, a sense of aloneness. An orphan is a child who's been separated from parents or maybe even one parent. And Jesus is so personal here. I'm not going to just give you the Holy Spirit there in verse 18. I will come to you. Now, I touched on it. What does he mean when he says, I will come to you? What do you think it means? It could mean three things. And I think all three things have truth to it. Some people saying, when he's saying in verse 18, it's going to be the second coming. I'm dying, I'm raising, I'm ascending into glory, but I will come to you. And they think he's talking about the second coming. You say, well, why would he think, why would they think that, scholars? Well, look at verse 3. Here's why. It's in the context. Chapter 14, verse 3. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will, what does he say? Come again. Obviously, he's talking there about his second coming because he says, I will take you, verse 3, to myself that where I am, you may be also. That's a phrase that's used in other places for the second coming. That's option one. Option two, what does Jesus mean in verse 18? Well, I will come to you. They say, well, it's real obvious in the context that what he's referring to here is I'm coming to you in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit because that's the context in which I'm speaking, some would say. In other words, the whole context here, part of it is the role of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to come again, not me, but I'm going to send another helper who's like me and he will come to you. Obviously, there's a context for that. But the third one and the most... uh, The one that I think is most accurate is he's saying here in verse 18, I will come to you and he's speaking specifically and primarily, let me say it that way, of his resurrection, of his resurrection. In essence, he's saying to them late Thursday night, tomorrow I'm leaving. Tomorrow I will be executed as I've already been telling you. But I will come to you, and I think here, in my resurrection. You say, well, Scott, why is it his resurrection? I think because of the next two verses. Look at him with me in 1419. He said, yet, 1419, Jesus said, a little while. And the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And then this phrase, because I live, you will also live. It really seems that he's addressing there the resurrection. The world won't see me, but you will see me. In fact, just look over two chapters at chapter 16. There's more I could say here, but very similar language. For 16, 16, a little while, you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will, what? See me seems most likely that the issue that I will come to you is in the resurrection. In fact, we know that that was confirmed in John's gospel, chapter 20, verse 19. You remember the first day of the week, the doors were locked. Jesus came. Uh, The disciples were there for fear of the Jews. They had the door locked. And it says, Jesus, and this is the language, came and stood among them. Just entered right through the door and came I think he's talking about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 4 through 7. It says he was raised on the third day. And then he used this verb. Appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Then to all the apostles. So I really think he's in the context here of the resurrection. Now it's interesting. Look down again at 1419. It says that the world will see me no more. So what, what, do you, what does that mean, Scott? Well... The best I can see, tell, you can come enlighten me. He never manifested himself after his resurrection to anybody but believers. So I think when he said there, the world will not see me, they never saw him again. They never saw him again. The only exception I think in the Word of God that I could find in the New Testament, if maybe your mind and heart went there, is maybe Saul. Saul. 
why are you persecuting me? He revealed himself there on the on that road. But every other instance of the New Testament of his appearance was to believers. So I think he's speaking of the resurrection here. Look at 19 again. He says there, he says, because I live, you will also live. Really seems like he's talking about the resurrection there. John eleven twenty five. 25. Do you remember when he said of one of the great I am statements? I am, Jesus said, the resurrection and the life. In other words, I am as a person, he said, the resurrection and the life. And he said in 1125, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live or yet shall he live. In other words, you live by your relationship with him who conquered death and the grave. Look at verse 20. I think this furthers it. In that day. Now, it could be that that day's the second coming. I understand that. But in light of what I just said, in that day, I think he's spe- speaking of the resurrection. I think he also might even have in his mind, in that day, in light of the Pentecost, you, he says to the disciples, will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What a statement. In other words, they're saying, how do we know the Father earlier in chapter 14? And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen what? The Father. But I think what he's saying is in that day of the resurrection, you will know when you see me. And I love that little phrasing, underline that. That I am in my Father, that's union. That you and you in me, that's our union. And I in you. This is the blessing of the Son. He's in you. He's with you. Don't you think that's something of what he meant when he said, I will never leave you or what? Forsake you. Listen, he may have gone into his ascension into glory, but there's a promise out of Hebrews. There's a promise out of Deuteronomy 31, quoting Hebrews 13, 5, that I will never leave you or forsake you. And he's speaking here of this union with Christ. You say, how can I understand the union? Well, let me put it in a picture for you. You finish the statement. Jesus is the vine. You are the what? Branches. You're connected to him. Just prayed with my wife this morning. Lord, use us today. But we can do nothing apart from you. Jesus said, by way of that union, I am the vine, you are the branches. He also said that he is the head and we are the what? The body. We're connected to him. He's the head, we're the body. He said too that he is the groom and we are the what? The bride. We're united to him. And so it speaks of that union. And I think he's just saying there, I am in the Father. I'm one. I've showed you this. John 10, 30. And you in me, I'm now united to you. And I in you, I'm in you. In other words, the blessing here is not only in the triune God that he impart the Spirit to you. The Son is connected to you. He's connected to you because of your salvation. In fact... A little closer if you want another word picture, okay? I have been, Paul says, Galatians 2.20, crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ, what? Lives in me. He's in me. Not only is the Holy Spirit taking up residence to dwell within you, but Christ, it says there in 2.20, lives in me. Next, Paul said in Colossians, that he wanted to the saints to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery of the Gentiles. And he said, which is Christ in you, the what? The hope of glory. Now there's other ways to describe this union. I'm just, in fact, would you just look over at Romans for a second? Look at Romans 6, and I'm trying to describe what Jesus meant there, where he said, you know, that great, great phrase, That I am in my Father and you in me. How are we in Christ? Well, this, in Romans chapter 6. Saw some of our wonderful men from Teen Challenge that God has done such a 
amazing work in their life. Don't we just praise God for that? Dom, are you preaching out there tonight? Just praise God when I see guys from Teen Challenge whom I know have been utterly redeemed. And, you know, you can tell they're redeemed. This might sound a little external. By their face. By their smile. By their joy. By their contentness. So how, how is that done? It's a miracle in their heart. God t- took a heart of flesh and he, he took a heart of stone and he turned it into flesh to its moldable. But, I, but Romans talks about that. Look at 6.3. He's talking about union here. There's no water here in Romans 6. This is not about water baptism. It's about spiritual baptism. He says, do you not know all of us have been, there's our word, baptized. The ideal is immersed it, not water, just spiritually into Christ Jesus. He says, we're baptized, we were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united, there's the thought, with him in death like this, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like this, or like his, excuse me. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. You say, Scott, what what do you mean set free from sin? To never sin? No. Has been set free from the bondage of sin. That the person who comes to Christ has been immersed into his life. And that no longer does that man, that woman, become enslaved to sin. For the one who has died, verse 7, has been set free. Not perfectly, but has been set free from the bondage of sin. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. That's what the ideal of walk in the newness of life. Look over at Romans chapter 8. You know this verse, but I'm showing this by way of union. There is that you know this one by heart. Therefore, now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. That's what we're talking about. In Christ. So does that mean something? Oh, that's union. You're in Christ. So not only does the Holy Spirit reside in you, but the Son of God has immersed you into life with him that as he died, you died. As he was raised, you were raised. All I can tell you is when I got off my knees at 14, a miracle took place. A miracle took place in my heart. Because whatever I used to love, I now hated. And whatever I used to lust after, I now didn't. And whatever I I used to hate in my former life before Christ, now I loved in Christ. What, What is that? It's a miracle in my heart. It's a miracle in your heart. And when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, he not only blessed you with the power and the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit, but he gave you the Son by way of union. And we get that externally because he's one with the father and because of our relationship to him now we are brought into that union in fact look at romans 8 9 he says you however 8 9 of romans are not in the flesh and here's that phrase but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of god what does it say dwells in you anyone who does not have the spirit of christ does not belong to him in other words He dwells in you, and this is how you know someone's redeemed. Does the Holy Spirit, does the person of Christ take up residence? Look at verse 10 of Romans 8. But if Christ is in you, there's that thought. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And there's so much more there. But look back to John 20. Just for a second, excuse me, John 14, verse 20. Jesus said, you in me and I in you. That's the point he's making. Nothing, you you say, what's a practical ramification of this? Well, I could just give you one, and I've spoken extensively on this. It, It says there in 20, this is just the application. I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. That's why. Finish the statement. Nobody can ever be separated from the what? 
love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How could you be in union with Christ and ever be separated from him? I say absolutely, utterly impossible. Jesus said to these disciples, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you destitute. I'm not going to leave you alone. I am with you. Now, how do you connect with God? I don't know if that's the word. How do you have a relationship with God? This is a blessing to you of the Spirit, a blessing to you of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. How do you have a relationship with them? Well, I'm, I'm really glad you're, you're asking that question. Watch verse 21. He says, whoever, ha Jesus said this, has my commandments and what? Keeps them. It is he who loves me, I love that statement. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And so you see there the very great principle that obedience to Jesus Christ is the mark of your love for Christ. Not that our love initiates that relationship. The initiative we understand is God's, but the result of our love for him is characterized by obedience. Let me say it this way. The one who truly loves Christ obeys his word. doesn't mean you're perfect. He's not talking about perfection. I've told you that before. He's talking about direction. You say, but Scott, I have a son or I have a daughter or I have a grandson and I have a granddaughter. And many, 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 many years ago, 20, 30, in some cases, 40 years ago, they came down the aisle, they prayed the prayer, but Scott, they just kind of live for themselves. Jesus is saying, you'll connect with me in 21, whoever has my commandments. And it doesn't mean that he just knows them or she knows them. He keeps them. It is he who loves me, and watch this in 21. Watch, this is unbelievable. If, if, if you're not reading it, he says, and it says, whoever has my commands that keeps in the heat is who loves me, and he who loves me, incredible, will be loved by my, what? Father. Listen, I want you to walk out of the building today understanding this blessing of the Holy Spirit understanding this blessing of the Son of God, understanding this fact that you are loved by God. As you obey the Lord Jesus Christ, you are extended a wonderful relationship with God the Father. But that's not all. I feel like a commercial. Look down again at verse 21. And he says, he will be loved by my Father at the end of 21. And Jesus said, I will love him and manifest myself to him. If you love and keep his commandments and obey his commandments, you show your love to Christ. You, in that sense, will be loved by the Father. And Jesus said here in this second blessing, I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, what's he talking about, manifest myself to him. I think there's two thoughts here. I think number one, staying with what, in, what I've said to you, what do you mean manifest? He's going to reveal himself. What's he talking about revealing himself in that word manifest? I think he's talking to the disciples. I'm going to come to you. And if you're truly mine and you keep my word and obey my word, then it's going to show that you not only love me, but you love the Father. And Jesus is giving them a promise. I'm going to reveal myself to you. Resurrection truth. Certainly that word was used at his first coming. It's used at his second coming. But I think in the context here, he's talking about resurrection. But I think there's something else here. Interesting. That verb for manifest was used by Moses in the Old Testament. Do you remember when he said, I want to see God? I want you to show yourself to me, Exodus 33, 13, and 18. I want to see all of you. I don't want you just to speak to me out of the voice. I want to see you, all of you. That's the same word here. And I really believe that what Jesus is saying 
is he will give to the disciples in his resurrection to us personally a display of himself in ever-creasing understanding of Christ as he's revealed in his word. If you want to know the person of Christ, if you want to have a relationship with Christ, then listen, you need to get some kind of Bible app or get some accountability and just start reading this book. He's going to reveal himself in this context three different times. He says, if you love me, you will obey my word. The context is obedience. Jesus responds to our obedience by an ever-increasing display of himself through the word of God. It's a manifestation of himself through obedience to his word. It is not necessarily, let me say this, an emotional experience, that's okay, but it's a desire to know him as he's been revealed to us in the word of God. It's a desire to see him through the pages of scripture with the eye of faith in his word. And the spirit reveals and manifests the person of Christ to us. So here, the son is disclosing himself in ever increasing sight by the eye of faith to those who are obedient. So he says, my departure, you understand, results not only in the Holy Spirit being sent, but secondly, it results in the blessing of the Son who will never leave you nor forsake you, who won't leave you destitute, who won't leave you alone. He said that I am with you always, Matthew 28, even to the end of the age. Why would he say that? Because he is with you. Listen, you can sing, Holy Spirit, fill this place, Holy Spirit, flood this place, but all I know is you have the triune God in intimate relationship with you, and he wants to show himself to you and manifest himself to you, and he does so by the word. But then there's a third blessing and a final one in chapter 14. Look at verse 22. Judas, and he's making a distinction here, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? I think I understand what Judas is saying. You say, well, who is this Judas? Well, you understand he's not Judas Iscariot who just left the building that night and went to go do his evil deed. This is Judas. We think it's Judas of James, at least in Luke 16, verse 16, he's cited as one of the 12. I don't think he's important other than you can see it there. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, and you say, well, what is he thinking about? How come you're going to show yourself to us but not to the world? I think he's saying this, and he's thinking like all the disciples. Listen, you're awesome. <laughs> Listen, we've seen you. We've seen your glory. How come you're only going to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus Christ, why don't you reveal yourself in stunning, brilliant glory that is unmitigated and they will know you're the Messiah? Why don't you not just show yourself to us? Why don't you just show yourself to the world? It's like when his brother said to Jesus back in John 7, I want you to go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you you do these things, his brothers said to him in John 7, 3, show yourself to the world. In other words, reveal yourself because he veiled in flesh Godhead see. He was veiled and they wanted him to display it. You said, well, what would he say in response to that? It's stunning. Look at the answer in verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, you think I just read it. No, he says it a third time. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. In other words, it's not a spectacular revelation of himself, not some out-of-the-body experience, if you will. No, no, no. Jesus declares that the revelation of himself is an internal reality. It's a spiritual reality. It's dependent on their obedience and love for him. It's Christ. In, in fact, would you look there? It's stunning. He said in verse 23, and my father, says it again, will love him and we will come to him and make our, what? Home with him. You know, I don't know. I'm sure you have <laughs> this book. It's probably in half the homes in this place. So I want to be careful in what I'm saying, but Sarah Young 
has written a book called Jesus Calling. It's a phenomenon, at least in the publishing world. She continues to grow in units sold each year since it was released. It recently just surpassed 15 million copies sold. Listen, if an author sells a million, if he or she does that, they are a bestseller. She's sold 15 million, increasing every year. The Jesus Calling Radio devotional reaches out to more than 500,000 people each day. But the most troubling aspect of the book is its premise that Sarah Young hears from Jesus. That's what she says. I'm just telling you. She hears from Jesus and brings her messages to the readers. Here's what her publisher said on the book, describing her book. Quote, after many years of writing her own words in her prayer journal, it said Sarah Young decided to be more attentive to the Savior's voice and begin listening for what he was saying. So with pen in hand, she embarked on a journey that forever changed her. In these powerful pages are the words of are the words and scriptures Jesus lovingly laid on her heart, words of reassurance, comfort, and hope. And then here's what she said. I begin to wonder if I could receive messages during my times of communing with God. I have been writing in prayer journals for years, but that was one-way communication. I did all the talking. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible. She said, but I yearned for more. I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day, end of quote. I mean, there's just no way to avoid her claim that she is communicating to you in her book, Divine Revelation. It really a, a, a claim that raises a host of concerns, not to say the least of which scripture alone is sufficient to guide us in all matters of faith and practice. Listen, I'm not saying God can't use that book. But I do want to say to you that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit has manifested the person of Christ in his book. You don't need another message. In fact, Young went on to say, the practice of listening to God has increased my intimacy with him more than any other spiritual discipline. So I want to share some of the messages I have received in many parts of the world. She said this, Christians seem to be searching for a deeper experience of Jesus Presence and peace, she said, the messages that follow address that felt need. Listen, if you want to understand his presence and his peace, then get and look to the word that's already revealed the person of Christ. Her solution to address this is actually not the scripture or another means of grace, but the messages that she actually provides in the book. And there's more I could say. Tim Challies, the blogger, said this, and it's quite a strong statement. You say, well, Scott, why did you bring Sarah Young up? And I don't know. I don't want anything to take you from the beauty of the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen? You don't need to hear her messages in communion with God that she penned for you, that she gives to you. Tim Challies said this, Jesus calling, pretty strong statement, I'll let him make the statement, makes the boldest, gutsiest, and to my mind, most arrogant claim of any book ever to be considered Christian. It's a strong statement. Now listen, I'm not saying that that book isn't used. I'm not even trying to fault her hearts. But I am saying to you that discernment is needed. And when I'm looking here of how they have a relationship with us, three different times he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my word. If you love me, then you'll walk in obedience to me. Listen, Grace Church, it is through God's word that you grow in godliness as we gaze at the person of Christ revealed in the scripture. Amen? You don't need some kind of external religion. You don't need necessarily what some call a second blessing. You need to obey the truth that you know and love engenders obedience. Your love for Christ ought to reveal himself in that way. And then the most stunning statement and the, the, the climax of the whole passage is what's next. He says in 23, he says, And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him, or actually, I'm reading that, make our home with him. What does that mean? Well, 
It was used in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus that God wanted to dwell with his people. He said, I want to build a sanctuary that I can dwell with them. He wants to dwell with you. In other words, he wanted to dwell with the people. He said in Exodus 29, 46, know that I am the Lord, the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell with them. And that word is not isolated to the Old Testament alone. We've already looked at it in John 1, 14, where it takes up residence amongst his people through the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. You finished the statement. The word became flesh and it, what? It dwelt amongst us. The ideal is it pitched his tent with us. So God was with them in the temple and in the sanctuary, often through that brilliant light. In the New Testament, he pitched his tent for 33 years, and God was dwelling with his people. Listen, you don't need a special message. Can you imagine what would happen to our church if everybody in this building took this word and not just wanted to know it intellectually, but took this word and said, Lord, help me be obedient today? I'll tell you that our community would turn upside down for the Lord Jesus Christ. Our high school campus would turn upside down for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as you ever reveal, as he is revealed to you, the Father and the Son make their home in your heart. They dwell with you through that idea of obedience. In other words, God's presence is among you. The Holy Spirit lives within you. The Father and the Son make their home in your heart. And look at the final statement there in 24. Whoever does not love me, doesn't talk is cheap, but whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And just lest the disciples got discouraged, look at 24. And the word that you hear is not mine. It's the Father's who sent me. It's the Father's. Do you remember that song? I wrote in my notes, it's an oldie but goodie. I serve a risen Savior. You know that one? He's in the world today. I know that he is, what? Living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always, what? Near. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. What a privilege we have. What a blessing we have from the Spirit, the Son, and the Father who make their home in our heart.